beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Welcome to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I always have at least 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This is a space where we believe that sharing yourself will make you less lonely. Also, there's a lot of new things going on right now. You might have noticed we're on a new day. 10 Things to Tell You will now be airing on Thursdays. There's new music. And also, just for fun, we're doing something a little bit different with today's episode. The tables are turned, and instead of me interviewing the guest, the guest is interviewing me. And I could not be more honored to be in the hot seat because the person here today with me is someone I have long admired. As an author, she's someone I've been reading for years. We are so happy to have Kelly Corrigan on the show. Kelly Corrigan has written four New York Times bestselling memoirs, including Glitter and Glue, The Middle Place, and Tell Me More. And she has been called the voice of a generation by O Magazine. And she's also a really great interviewer on her podcast called Kelly Corrigan Wonders. And so today, in the spirit of 10 Things to Tell You, she came with 10 questions to ask me. And y'all, there are some real doozies in here in this conversation. She asks everything from the best live performance that I've ever seen to really deeply personal questions like, what was something that I've been wrong about? And it just gave me a chance to talk about some things that I haven't mentioned here in a while or ever. And it ends up being, you know, less of an interview and more of a conversation. I hope that you enjoy listening in on this episode with me and the lovely 
Kelly Corrigan. I will link in the show notes to all the places that you can find Kelly online, her podcast, her books. I know that you are going to want to follow her after this if you don't already. I will also put on social media and in the show notes the 10 questions that Kelly asked me. I thought they were really excellent conversation starters, and you might want to use them in your own life with a loved one, in your journal. It was really, really good. So welcome to Thursdays, everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode where the tables are turned and I am being interviewed by Kelly Corrigan. Kelly, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. I'm so happy to have you on the hot seat, Laura. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever let someone interview you on this show? No, and I'm so nervous because not only has this never happened before, so I run anxious, so I'm going to be nervous anyway, (laughs) but also it's a little intimidating because it's you, an author I have read for years and years, a podcaster I have listened to, and so yeah, this has never happened but, you know, there's a first time for everything. So I'm glad we're doing it. Thank you, you for You just lean for back and this. relax. I've, I find being interviewed much more relaxing than actually interviewing. Do you? I do. I feel like I don't have to prepare anything. I just sort of sit back and take whatever's given to me. I feel like I'm like I'm the doubles partner who's not serving. Mm. No, I feel a pressure to perform a little mm. when I'm being interviewed. When I'm interviewing, I feel like a little more in control of the situation. You are not in control today, young lady. No, you are not. Seed. Take your hands off the wheel. Control is my sort of poison pen. You and and millions of others. You are not alone there. Okay, so I have 10 questions for you in the spirit of your pod. I love it. We're going to start simple. I mean, this might take you a minute to comb through the archives, but what is the best live performance you've ever seen? Okay. So I have a knee-jerk response, and then I have a more appropriate response. (laughs) Okay, great. But I want them both. I want the knee-jerk first. So my knee-jerk response is Ryan Adams at Mm. the Troubadour in like 2002, maybe. I had just moved to Los Angeles from Oklahoma I was deeply obsessed with Ryan Adams, and I got to see him in this little tiny venue. The Troubadour in L.A. is like the size of a living room. It's really small. It's so classic L.A. I feel like it's in Swingers. Is it in Swingers? It might be. It's very classic L.A. Like you will have rock stars who got their start there, and then you'll also have like huge world famous rock stars who do like surprise shows there Mm, because obviously it would sell out in one second. So it is a really famous venue. It felt very LA and I had just moved here from like the country. Yeah. And you know, he was my favorite artist at the time. And I just was so emotional to be like 10 feet from him singing these songs that meant a lot to me. I remember I went to the bathroom (laughs) and like, candidly called an ex-boyfriend just to like weep uh-huh, uh-huh. On the you were feeling it you were emo as my daughters say you were all yeah. emo I have never had a problem feeling my feelings and so <laughs> that is the first answer I say it you know Brian Adams has had a complicated and problematic last few years and it's it's 
hard to say you're a fan, you know, a little bit. So that was my need, but that was my true knee jerk answer. The maybe more appropriate answer that I actually do want to say, because I haven't talked about this on the show at all, and it is a really amazing memory for me, is I took my daughter, who's 14, to several shows in 2023. We obviously did Taylor Swift and that will be mm. like a lifetime memory for us. Just watched it. That's all I got <sighs> on that. But three and a half hours, my daughter and I, who's 20, stood up and sang back to her on the television set. I mean, it's so emotional. She's She is an unbelievable entertainer. I know I'm not like breaking new ground with that comment, but I mean, honest to God, how many great songs has she written? And like, does she know how to do it to a crowd? She goes up, she comes down, she's quiet, she's alone out there. Then the dancers come, then she's flirty, then she's sad, then she's on top of the roof of the little house. And then (laughs) she's at the piano and then she's alone with her guitar. I mean, unbelievable. It was like a religious experience. Also, like on the heels of the pandemic, there there was something, every time they cut to the crowd in the Eras Tour movie, I felt like a lump in my throat. I thought these people are having such an intimate experience, all 70,000 of them. I mean, that's what I said to people who would like sort of poo-poo the whole Taylor Swift thing when I would talk about it. I was like, the thing about it is you don't have to like listen to her music in your spare time. Like you don't have to be that level of fan to understand that in that room, like in that stadium, it was... 70,000 people singing together. I mean, that is kind of what a religious experience is. The singing together, the collectiveness of it was, you know, in a world that's really like championing individuality and doing your own thing and push back and don't join the crowd, don't conform. I've never been happier to conform in my life. It was so amazing. It was so beautiful. And that's not even the show I was going to end on. What I was going to say is I took my daughter Lucy to Taylor Swift and then randomly we got invited to go to Pink. Amazing. Absolutely blew anything else out of the water. Had we not seen Taylor Swift earlier in the year, I would have been like, this is the best show I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Pink puts on the most amazing show. I was neutral on Pink. I mean, I, I like sort of liked her theoretically. It was, um, I am now it's like some kind of super fan. It was amazing. She's so creative. Like you can really imagine her collaborating with dancers and stage producers and the tech crew. Like what is possible? Can you spin me down from a, <laughs> uh, from a ribbon, you know, like 40 feet in the air and then drop me in water and then lift me up and spray the water all over the room? Like, and can you get the lighting on me just right so you can only see my my eyes, but nothing else? And like, she's truly bringing every asset of a live performance to bear. Yes. Yes. She's such a badass. I could not be more in awe. My daughter, too, who also was like sort of neutral. Again, we got invited to this. We were both like, what are we experiencing right now? Yeah. This is amazing. Charisma is charisma, you know, like showmanship is showmanship. And I feel like it's only gotten more powerful after that COVID thing where we were all separated and having to live a 2D life, like to be like to have all your senses engaged, to smell it and see it and be bumping into people and, and, and all the sound and all the visuals, like it's a full on assault of your senses. And I think we're starved for that. I mean, I know I am. Yeah. It was amazing. What's the last book that blew you away? I read a lot. So this is a hard question. But my favorite book of 2023 was Shark Heart by mm-hmm. Emily Hobbick. 
Haven't heard of it. It's amazing. It's mm-hmm. about a newlywed couple and the husband, the man, starts slowly morphing into a great white shark. Great. You like novels. Do you read more novels than nonfiction? I'm about half and half. I'm literally almost at 50% when I sort of looked at my stats. And it's weird to talk about stats and reading, but it, I do it. We measure everything now. We're, we are like the great optimized generation. It's a competition. Reading is a competition. Mm-hmm. Didn't you know? <laughs> I do. I totally do. I feel self-conscious about it all the time. I Yeah, I read about half and half fiction and nonfiction. I do a lot of book episodes on this show, and I have really regimented reading. Now, that's not doesn't go to the competitive piece. That's the Lara piece. But I read nonfiction in the mornings, and I read novels in the afternoons and evenings, almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so that does put me at like a right out of 50% kind of rate because I'm reading both every day. I also mm-hmm. set a 20-minute reading timer. Mm-hmm like a big reading timer person. I like that. Have you read Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon? That's what I'm reading right now. And I, I'm I'm just in awe. No, I've heard so many good things about Holy it. Holy smokes. What a mind and what a question he's asking. So it's, you know, kids who are markedly different from their parents, either they're a dwarf or they're deaf or they're trans or they're a, a genius, a prodigy. And it's asking such hard questions about, why we parent and why we Mm. are always correcting things. So interesting. Okay, Laura Tremaine, this one I'm really psyched to hear for. Number three, if your high school did superlatives, maybe they did, did they? They did. You'll die. What's the answer? What were you most likely to become? I mean, maybe you won't die, but I want to die laughing, (laughs) thinking of it. Most likely to become president. Right on. Go ahead. I, I say the field's wide open. Get out there. I could not be less interested in running for any sort of office. I wouldn't run for PTA president. Like, Neither I would I. I, I it, it, so it made sense in my teenage life that this was what I got because I was very, I came from a very politically active family and I was very let me pass out political stickers to you at the football game. Like Uh that was. Did the younger you think maybe you would get into politics? And then you grew up and realized how tough a business it actually is. No, I don't think I ever, even younger me would have ever considered actually running, but it was important to me in a way that it's not now, which isn't to say politics aren't important, but like it was everything in my family. In Oklahoma, which is so highly religious, mm-hmm. my parents are not. Their religion is conservative politics. Mm-hmm. That was our everything. That was our dinner conversation. That was our weekend activities. That was our You're like, like orienting philosophy. Yes. It was our corest value. Mm-hmm. It was how we judged or talked about others. Mm-hmm. It was so deep. My parents are also super, super conservative. My mom always loved Barry Goldwater. Oh, my God. My parents met because they were both Barry Goldwater fans, which now is shocking. Right, right. No one would claim that identity right now. Right. But but God, how little we knew about people. 
I mean, when my mom and your mom were 25, 30 years old and they were developing their own political identity, how much did they know about people? Like, think about the difference between how much we know about the candidates this year and then the, what little would have been in the paper. I mean, right. people didn't even know. I mean, people didn't know how much a president weighed. They didn't know if they were in a wheelchair or not. They didn't know if they used a cane. They didn't know what their wife looked like. I mean, you know, they didn't know who their children were. Like, it was just a different, there's just, you know, over every decade, over the last 100, 150 years, the amount of information we have about these people on a personal level and the amount of digging up and surfacing of every position a person has ever held on any topic. Yeah. Like you couldn't, you couldn't just do a search and say, oh, well, this is what Johnson or Nixon said when they were 32 years old or when they were 21 in college. You know what I mean? The footprint now is insane. And in the case of my parents, at least, but I do think this is a little bit universally true, is they didn't know, you know, as much about anything outside of their own bubble and what mattered to them. I mean, travel was not a thing that everybody did. No, not at all. You didn't know like what you didn't know what you didn't know, of course, but you also just didn't know like how the rest of the world um, was. My parents grew up really poor in Oklahoma. They didn't travel. They didn't know. I mean, they were very well read and they're actually well educated and everything. So I'm not, this isn't a, you know, it's just a distinction in time of like, totally. it was just a totally different time. My parents are still conservative and that's been complicated since I moved to California and a lot of things changed. Mm -hmm. But back to the original question, like I was so convinced that, I mean, almost that like politics were like the lifeblood in a way. And they do matter, of course, but I just feel differently about it. Mm -hmm. I remember asking my mom if she ever doubted her faith. She, My parents, my father died eight years ago, but he went to church every single day of his life seven days wow. a week. And my mom goes every single day. And I asked her if she ever considered other religions, ever wavered in her faith. And she said, Kelly, I didn't know a person who wasn't Catholic until I was about 35. Every single person we knew in Baltimore went to church every day, got ashes on Ash Wednesday, didn't eat meat on Fridays, put on their nice clothes every Sunday, did went to confession, did the Advent wreath, you know, like, she's like, I was, it was completely homogenous life experience. There was nobody on our street. There was nobody at our schools. There's nobody who came to our house for a cocktail party or to eat dinner with us. Hmm. I, I wasn't even, I didn't know a person who wasn't Catholic. It's a different context in which to be making decisions about what you do and don't believe. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a tipping point, I think, where you think I can't, it's going to be hard to reroute at this point. <laughs> totally, 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 totally. Like even if you become more open-minded or, or more expansive or accepting or, or of others' beliefs and stuff, you still are like, but I, this is my path. You know, I mean. Right. Well, an interesting thing about people changing their minds is to consider what would it do for their social life and their most important connections if they were to change a position on, say, reproductive rights or immigration or affirmative action or... Dot, dot, dot. Like all the things that we so commonly disagree about, 
it's insensitive, I think, to not consider that in some families and in some communities, if you were to switch your position on a big issue, you could lose all your relationships. Except I think a lot of people have gone through that since 2016. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's intense. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Speaking of intensity and hard times, question number four. What is your go-to mantra for hard times? You are not lost. Hmm. I love that. I have to remind myself of that because... It's easy for me to feel lost and in all kinds of ways, like relationally, in my work, in the world, like in the news cycle, like I can feel really underwater about it. And I hate that feeling. And to come back to myself, there's so many ways you can come back to yourself and sort of center yourself. And for me, that's the biggest one. You are not lost. And it's almost like even when I say it out loud, I, I feel a sense of calm come over me because I'm not. I know who I am. I know where I am. I might need to pivot. Or, you know, I might need to get more sleep. I might There might be things that I can do to not feel chaotic or sad or in despair or whatever, but I am not lost. Now, this looks different if you're talking about grief versus a busy work season, you know, but it does apply to a lot of hard times, I feel like. What's like your most orienting thing? Like, where do you like plug in or to what do you plug in? Do you mean like, how do I recenter? Is that what you're asking? I guess I was thinking, I wonder for me, the the work of making a podcast week in and week out is very orienting. Oh. And so when I think about like, I'm not lost, I've sort of translated it instantly in my head to like, I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it. And that's super helpful to me to have this assignment that I've, that to, to make this work, to make these conversations and, and, and to develop a point of view about the world and all the people in it and to have these, all this thought partnership week in and week out. And so I, I feel like when I, when I have that sort of disorienting sensation or constellation of sensations, really, I think just do your work. You, you, you decide, just refer back to that important decision you made, which is I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do it for these reasons. And that decision doesn't need to be revisited. I like the decision. I feel good about the point of it all. And so just go back to work. Okay. I love that. Because where it goes for me is not, you know what you're doing, which I really love that that was your interpretation. Mine is more, I know who I am. I can still spin out about if I know what I'm doing or not, (laughs) even knowing who I am. But it has to be like, because I, I do get into an identity swirl sometimes. Like I would be like, am I a podcaster? (laughs) Am I doing the right work? Am I, you know? 
those sort of external actions. And when I remind myself, I know who I am, then other things kind of click into place. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is the thing. Now the, the action I take, if I do need to like really come back to that is I'm a big journaler. Like I love to journal, seeing my own handwriting on a page Sometimes I sometimes don't even know. I know a lot of writers say that they don't even know what they think about something until it appears on the page. That's true for me sometimes when I'm like professionally writing, like on a in a word document. But it's more true when I'm journaling that I did not know how I felt about something until I sort of see it in my handwriting. Yeah, I think um, handwriting is a big deal. I think pencil is a big deal, actually. Oh, pencil. Yeah. It Why? Just, because. For me, it's it's really elemental. It's like of the mm. earth, like lead is of the earth. And it goes all the way back to childhood where you were working in school and it's not permanent. You can erase it. I don't know. There's something about the sound of it that, I, that it's actually like a, a lovely signal for me, almost like a trigger of like, so just do your work. I'm just writing on the page. Keep going. Keep, just keep swimming. Like I always say the Nemo line, just keep swimming. I hear, I hear Dory telling me to just keep swimming. Do you do that often? I write in pencil every day, every day. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love a sharp pencil. I love a clean eraser. Like before it's been, before it gets the little black rolly things on it. I mean, I'm getting deep here, but this is, this is, yeah, I love it. I like a mechanical pencil. I mean, I'm yeah. I have to draw, like I redraw my calendar. You know, like I have an electronic calendar, obviously, on my phone and on my laptop. But then I, when I'm on planes, I redraw the whole thing. And it's very highly designed. Like my 12-year-old self who loved making fonts and, you know, little icons for different kinds of events, you know, like a little birthday cake for somebody's birthday or a plane for a trip. Like all that comes out with my pencil. And there's something about it that's relaxing and it it makes it all seem more fun. You know, it makes a work trip seem more fun when you're like cordoning it off in your, in your hand drawn calendar and drawing your little airplane. And it also helps me process it. It also helps me remember like, it's okay. Like right now for this, the next eight days are, there's way too much. When you look at my electronic calendar, it looks awful. Like it's like a terrifying (laughs) calendar to look at. But when I draw it, I draw the boxes bigger and I can Mm. see the openings. I can see the, oh, there's a three hour train ride. That'll be relaxing. Oh, that day ends at seven. Like that's totally fine. I could be in bed by 830, you know, so I can show myself that I'm going to survive it. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. This is one of my favorite all time questions to ask people. Question number five. Is there anyone you would like to apologize to? This is heavy. I know. But it's like so human. Like everybody probably has like 10 people they'd like to apologize to. Yeah, I do. I'm not going to name them, but I'm going to explain why I owe them an apology. So I talked about this a little bit on my episode about 10 things I learned in 2023 publishing a book on friendship, I was wildly unprepared 
for the conversations that would ensue and all of the sort of upheaval to so many of my deepest friendships. Mm. I, w- I, I was so naive about it. I think because it wasn't my first book and my first book had contained all these sort of tender stories and I like had really emotionally prepared and journaled through a public reaction to those stories in the first book. And it that did not come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, people do not feel about your tender stories the way you feel about yes, your tender yes. stories. Yes. And so I have felt like after that experience, like, oh, okay, well, my second book about friendship is a lot less sensitive. It's a universal topic. I love everyone I write about or reference or any, you know, like we're all good. Like, like how could this go wrong? <laughs> friends. And even though I did also write in the book about I've had friendship breakups, I've had terrible friend things, but I just felt like, and I don't know how I feel about this in terms of like the universe jinxes you, like, I don't know, but you know, it does seem like people who write books about how to start a business go bankrupt, Uh (laughs) Uh you know, people who write the story about their marriage, they always divorce. Yes. So I don't know why it didn't cross my mind that writing a book about friendship would cause such disruption to my friendships. And that was like the hardest part of 2023 for me and the hardest part of being like a a creator and a writer. And it was just like a very unexpected life lesson. And I just dropped the ball in a lot of ways with some of my friendships You know, I owe a few people, one in particular, like an apology for that, because it felt I can see how from their point of view and ultimately from my point of view, I feel like a fraud Mm. for going going on a million, for going on Good Morning America and talking about friendships and not taking care of my own. Mm. I have no problem like admitting that to everyone. And also it sucked. Yeah. Do you relate to any of that? I haven't written about friends. I mean, I, I, I guess that's not really true. Like I've, I've written about my friend, Mary Hope, a lot. I've written about my cousin, Kathy, who lost her son, Aaron, a lot. But we did it to, almost together. So there were no, there was no chance that it would get funky. Well, I just want to clarify that what I wrote, it, there was never a problem with what, with the words in my book. Oh, Okay. That that all stands. I stand by every word in that book. Okay. It was more about like I I wrote in the life council about like maintaining friendships, like how you have to maintain friendships. And guess what I did not do was maintain yeah. friendships. Yeah, so yeah, there was yeah. nothing there was nothing that I don't stand by in that I see. in that book I about see. the relationships. But it was just like how it's squared with reality. Yeah, like I was like, oh my god, why am I te- why am I spouting my friendship philosophies? <laughs> yeah, I often think about that with parenting. Like, so my books are all stories, so I, I'm not giving advice or anything. It's just telling stories. But I wonder if I'm I'm coming off as like a better mom than I am. Like, I'm always trying to draw out a, a more complete version of myself on the page so that I don't fall into that pattern where it's like it's kind of faux vulnerability where you're telling like a cute thing that you did to mess up but not really a real thing mm-hmm. I don't know I mean writing nonfiction writing memoir is just full of 
IEDs, you know, it's a, yes. it's a landmine and, and it's, it is, I find it also unpredictable how, what might go off. Like I, I wrote something that I just thought was so funny and kind of complimentary towards someone. And then I, they were reading a draft and they were like, I don't want you to say that. I'm like, Oh, you don't like, and they were kind of like, no, like, why would you think I would want you to say that? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. I think maybe I would think it was really funny if someone said that about me. And I think it's kind of weirdly flattering. Like I was talking about this guy's popularity with ladies when he was young. And he's like, right, oh, but right. like, I have a job and I have colleagues and I just don't want them to think of me that way. And I was like, right, right. Sorry. Like, <laughs> God, thank God I showed it to you. Cause it's like one tiny little line that I might not have, you know, there's like a lot of people to get sign off from. So yeah, I, I, I feel you. I totally feel you. When was the last time you cried? I do cry, but the last time I felt like a deep cry was I thought I had messed something up for my kid. Actually, it's going to make me cry right now. I had missed an email and a scheduling thing and whatever, and I thought I'd screwed something up for my kid that was really important to him. He's 12. And, of course, the you know reason that I had mucked it up was I was I'm, I was too busy like I had too much going on which you know there's like I, I try not to to delve into this but there's always going to be a level of like mom shame if you work mom shame if you don't work like uh, we all have it and so I already have you know sort of have that like am I working too much am I whatever and it was devastating to me to think that I'd messed something up for mm -hmm. him he's he's not old enough to have handled it himself in any way, you know, it would have just been a total ball drop. And I was never going to, I was like, not going to forgive myself. And, you know, I, I sent some emails and like begged and pleaded and said, please, like, I'm so sorry we missed. Can we, is there anything we can do? And it actually did end up working out mostly. So why am I like crying about it right now? But I, it just brought up so much for me. I, also because it was my husband who like realized the mistake. Mm. And so when he sort of says it to me, I get home from an event. It's like late. And he's like, listen. Ugh. And I was like, oh. The worst. Double. The worst. It's like a double. It's like, oh, God. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just, you know, your role in the family and we're all trying to juggle a lot of balls. And but yeah, it's, you know, marriage dynamics, like all all the things where I just was like. I cried then, I'm crying now. And it mm. worked out. It it obviously touched something. It was a record scratch a little bit. You know, a lot of these things we're talking about, some of them are very tied together. This was this happened a few months ago, end of last year, and in the same time where I was experiencing some of this friendship angst that I'd also reaped myself. So a lot of these things were happening where I feel like I am dropping all the balls. <laughs> Something has got to give a little bit here. It was all sort of happening in a very similar timeline. And so I think I was probably extra sensitive because, you know, we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes with our kids, with our friends, everything. Yes. But, but when they pile up and, and they're of a similar type where it's like you're somehow getting your work done, but you're not getting your love done. And then it's like, what am I doing? Like, but you, you know, and then we overreact and 
Yeah. I feel you. I just was doing this. I love to puzzle. I was doing a puzzle and neither of my kids will puzzle with me, but sometimes they'll sit at the table and talk to me while I puzzle. And so Georgia, my oldest was sitting there and there was something about us not making eye contact that was making her very open. Like it sort of seemed like I could ask her anything, you know, it was like one of those moments where the window is open and, and so we're, I'm asking her some questions, dumb stuff, you know, do you have any crushes, that kind of thing. And then I said, um, what's like the worst mistake I made as a mother? Cause she's 20. Oh my God. I know she's 22. She said she works. She graduated from college in 23 and now she's been at work for six months or something. And she goes, you don't want to know. Like, just like that. Like it was on the tip of her tongue. Oh, and I didn't look up. Like I tried not to like have the, it be too much of a moment. And I was like, no, I do. I, 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 I can hear it. Like I'm, I'm sure I've done tons of things. Meanwhile, inside I'm like, oh my God, what is she going to say? And she said, um, you talked about bodies too much. Oh. Food and bodies. What looked good. Oh, you look, you look skinny in that. Oh, look at that. That woman gained a lot of weight. Oh, I'm gaining weight. You know, just all the, the, that whole kettle of fish that you can get so wrong so easily. You know, she's like, like you, you and your girlfriends used to watch the Golden Globes together. And basically like all you talk about the whole night is like who, whose body looked good and whose body looked bad. And, and you know, I was just like, Oh God, it would be like taking back a thousand comments. Mm. You sure you're going to eat that? That's not your, you know, and then you get like a little smarter. You listen to the right podcast. You overhear somebody say it. That is kind of how dangerous it is. And then you, get smarter. Like you should have protein. Like you should, like I read today, you should have eggs for breakfast because they give you protein for school. And, but still like all you're talking about is food, 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 and appearance. So much about appearance. And I have two girls and it, it it's a, just a terrible default that mm-hmm. women talk about. I mean, when you walk into, I just was with a bunch of women last night and you walk into a room of women. And the first thing everyone says to each other is some little comment about your pants. Love your lipstick. Oh, your hair looks good. Oh, would you curl it? Cute sweater. Love those jeans on you. You look so young. What are you doing? God, your skin's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Or all the negative stuff. Oh my God. Like my pot belly looks so stupid in these jeans and like, thank God for this big sweater and look at my age spots. And oh my God, my forehead's like an eight lane highway. And, you know, look at my roots and it, it is just such a, it is like, it's like you're trying to, I've been cross country skiing in Montana. It's like you're trying to ski and you keep falling into the path where the ruts are really deep. And you just like, they're so deep. You just slip right into them. And then you just stay there unconsciously indicating to any little ears that might be listening that this is what matters the most. This is what we talk about. And this is what you talk about as an adult. And this is what adulthood is for a woman. So I was like, I loved Barbie and I, I cried my eyes out and, you know, it's a lot about mothers and daughters and it's a lot about this, this topic of like how we present. So yeah, that was like 
a really big cry. That's somebody I wish I could apologize to a thousand times. Yeah. Why did you open that door by asking her that question? I don't really know. I mean, it wasn't premeditated. It was very opportunistic. But maybe maybe I maybe I believe that it's helpful for her and her sister Claire to be able to say hard things to me like rather than just hold them. Mm-hmm. And and have a strong feeling that they don't get to express to me it creates an opportunity for me to say i was wrong you're totally right if i could take if i could take it back i would it's really ignorant it's really ignorance i just want you to know it's ignorance like you know like both my parents would have been on record dozens of times saying kel you lose some weight girl like you know that's just how we talk to each other and that's it's, it, it was we've learned a lot in the, in the 56 years I've been alive, the way we talk about this stuff's changed a lot. And loving parents can say really stupid stuff by accident. Yeah. But it's more the drumbeat. Like a, th- a thing that was really obvious, I'm really going deep here, but the thing that was really obvious to me was around college. And I didn't see it around body image stuff. But it's the exact same concept which is, I said to Edward, my husband, when Georgia was a freshman, I think we should decide how many times we want to say the word college in this house. Because I think it's going to take that much conscious, intentional decision-making to control ourselves from saying it 45,000 times. And then when she's freaking out about going to college, saying this totally nonsense. Don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. And it's like, what are you talking about? You've mentioned it 45,000 times in the last three years. So you can't just like wipe all that away with like these pat statements. I know what matters to you because whatever you talk about the most is what matters to you. Mm. And, and, you know, it's like people are in your house and they're bringing it up and they're in a culture that's bringing it up. And so your 45,000 mentions gets attached to the 100,000 other mentions that they're hearing in everyone else's house and every day at school from teachers and at recess and on the lacrosse field. And now you got a kid who's heard it 150,000 times that you're trying to calm down. And it's like too late. And it's the exact, I wish I had seen that it's the exact same thing with body image. We should say, how many times are we going to talk about appearance in this house? Our appearance their appearance, other people's appearance, celebrity appearances, things we see on television. Like how much are we going to talk about it? Because you've got to be more conscientious about, because, you know, more is caught than taught. Like that's a really true statement for parenting. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't teach you that like all bodies are good bodies. I'm only showing you. Yeah. So, so I don't know why I said it. Maybe so I could apologize. Maybe I, so I could know. I didn't really know what she would say. I was really surprised that that was her answer. I thought I had done other things that were even worse. <laughs> you know, and maybe there's yeah, like a I, runner up that I don't know about that I'm going to find out about in three years. It's also might be what she feels at 22. She's going to answer that question differently at 35. Of course. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah, and she'll have her own children someday, maybe, and then that will once again rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. 
Well, so this is perfect. So that is something big that I have been wrong about. What's something big that you have been wrong about? That's question number seven. So many things, but (laughs) like a big picture life thing that I have been wrong about is that I would not let California change me. (laughs) So when I moved here, it was like my oath. It was my oath to my loved ones and to myself that I would always be like an Oklahoma girl or I would always stay not say the same because I, you know, I've always been sort of bent on changing, if you will, but like that I wouldn't let, it, it felt shallow to me to think like that you would just wishy-washy let a place change you or <laughs> or something, you know? And I really held to that for a long time. Like I lived in California for 10 years and I've been here 22 years now, but I lived here for a good decade. And when I would, you know, travel or whatever, and people would say, where are you from? I would say, Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Or I would, I would say I'm from Oklahoma, but I live in Los Angeles. Like the Oklahoma piece was more important. Now it was very important. And for a time it was equally important, but there was for sure a tipping point where I was like, oh yeah, no, like I'm a Californian. Yeah. And I even had people outright sort of shame me about you've really changed. You've let that place get to you as if I couldn't have my own thoughts, as if I couldn't have evolved regardless of where I lived. I fought that battle for a little bit of like, you know, I'm like a functioning smart person who can change her mind, you know, or whatever, change her beliefs, change the way she votes, whatever. I sort of fought that for a while. And then now I've landed in a place where it's all true in some ways. Like I, my roots, I care so much about them. I, I care so much about where I came from and where I started. And also I've changed and also living in a place like LA probably contributed to that change. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's all true, but I, I made the choice to live here. I made the choice to stay here and. And that has consequences. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I didn't have any agency in it. I ha- I I chose it all. And also, yeah, it matters. I yeah. think where you live, who you surround yourself with, the things you read and listen to, it, it all, all of these things matter. Of course. Of course. And it just took me an absurdly long time to learn to let go of pieces of my identity. I just clung so tight to some you know, relationships and, and identity markers and, and perceptions. Like I, I really clung so tight to them for like long, so past their expiration date. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a lot about my thirties were about besides also parenthood. I became a mom when I was 31. So a lot of my thirties was about parenting and all those millions of lessons that you learn. But the, a lot of it was also this sort of identity wrestle and, and I was wrong about it in about 15 ways. I yeah. would say I was wrong about how this was going to unfold. I was wrong about what I thought. I I thought, and this might be just actually an immature thought that a lot of people think, but I really thought that I wasn't like influenceable or, or uh-huh. like, like I was uh-huh. like, I'm not, I, I'm not, not suggestible. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
I already preached to everybody about how I know who I am. Like, I don't... <laughs> and I literally just posted to my Instagram this morning. We are an average of the five people we spend the most time with. Oh yeah. I love that quote. Like it's, we are contextual beings. Yeah, of course. But you're right. It does sort of imply that you're like, just, you know, blowing with the wind, which is not, which is not accurate either. And so many people think that like, they're not going to be influenced by what's in their social media feed. Like they are standing strong or something, not realizing that they're impenetrable. Yeah. Prone to the algorithm as the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and how you can fall down this rabbit hole of you search one thing and then you start to, you know, this is where conspiracy theories really spin out of control. And like, and I think we all do it, though, to a certain extent. You don't have to be extreme to be like, yeah, I'm totally influenced by the people I scroll by and what they're preaching at me. Or Right. Well, so that brings me to question eight, which is if you could change a law or overturn a Supreme Court case, like speaking of society and suggestibility and. Oh, this is a, these are so heavy, Kelly. Sorry. You had 10 questions. I had to come up with 10 questions. And I didn't want you to t- have to talk about stuff you've already talked about a thousand times on your pod. So I had to go to some new places. I mean, you know, like reproductive rights. Yeah, Dobbs. Matter to me in a way that they didn't when I was 22. And they should have. Becoming a mom changed a lot of that mm-hmm. for me. Also being really honest facing some of the like privilege that I had thinking about my own reproductivity and all the options that I would have had had something been different in my 20s. I was pretty high and mighty about Mm -hmm. that when I was younger. I mean, I was high and mighty about so many things, weren't we all? Yes. And so that has been uh, that, you know, that's something that matters to me a lot more now than it used to. I'm sure there's other things that I could think of here, but I want you to answer this one. I mean, I would overturn Citizens United, that Supreme Court case that made it possible for people to pour so much money into elections without really Mm. claiming their interest. I I feel like that, I I feel like elections have totally gotten away from us. I want the people's interests and desires and candidates to win. I, I want, and it's hard now. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of big groups, a lot of special interests that can just yeah, totally overrule the common man's desires. And that isn't the way it was supposed to be. Tell me this. If your mother wrote a book about you, what would it be called? <laughs> this is my, this is another like favorite question of mine. Stop sharing your stuff. Ah, mine would be too. That's what my mom would say for sure. <laughs> Kelly, stop. I think that's what mine would be. Kelly. My parents yeah. do not relate to like my main message which has been for years through my books and my podcast sharing yourself will make you less lonely that's like my whole thing and they are like what what they're like so baffled by it but I also know because I've done a lot of therapy I also know that this sort of being my life's work, currently my life's work, is completely in reaction to growing up around so much secrecy. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
it wasn't like scandalous secrecy. It's well, that I know of, but it's just my parents do not want to share. They don't want to talk about emotions or feelings. Right. It's all facts, logistics, intellectualism. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, not philosophy personal. and love. Yeah. And in fact, they just think it's tacky to share. They uh-huh. think it's. Other people are not interested, like it's self-serving or, uh-huh. or, te- or nosy. Speaking. Yeah. I'm sure my mom thinks I'm so nosy. Like if I asked her these questions, she'd be like, oh, Kelly, I got to <laughs> answer that. What are you talking about? Okay. We have three more minutes. Okay. And then it's like the hardest question saved for last. Mm-hmm. You might need more than three minutes. If you could say four words to anyone, who would you address and what would you say? I would address my three of my best friends from high school. We're in three different time zones now. And I would say, I miss you so. Mm. I would. I think I could say those four words to actually a, a dozen people probably. Yeah. But I think those words matter. I think it feels good to be missed. Yeah. To be noticed. Your absence to be noticed. And... I've been because I've been like so thinking about all of this now for a couple of years. That's that's one of the things that I am working on is just telling people what they mean. Telling people they matter matters. I always say that to my girls. Like make yeah. it explicit. It's okay to make it explicit. It's nice. Yeah. People never forget that. Yeah, it's really important. You're a dream. I'm so happy I got to talk to you. This was so fun. You're fabulous. You are. I'm really glad that we got to talk. This was easy. You're the best. Thank you. Bye, Laura. Bye.